Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host, and today there's a good show in store. First, I'm going to get to a couple of websites, then I'll get to the participant, Lisa Marciano, and then we'll jump in. So just to point you in a couple of directions, check out the Center for Healing Arts and Sciences at the Center for HAS. A lot of cool stuff going on, an integrative wellness center here in Houston. We've got some cool programming coming on that people can become members of, and uh, I'll let you know more about that as it comes to light. Uh, of course, check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. Um, check out the Young Center in Houston at younghouston.org. A lot of great classes, a lot of great resources there. And also, Modern Nations, modernnationsmusic.com. Uh, stay tuned to the end of the episode, and you'll hear the full selection of the theme music, Clouds. The song is Clouds from Modern Nations. Thanks, guys. So to Lisa Marciano, I'd like to give you her website at Lisa, L-I-S-A-M-A-R-C-H-I-A-N-O.com. The book we discuss is called The Vital Spark, Reclaim Your Outlaw Energies and Find Your Feminine Fire. It is out very soon, and uh, I had a great chat with Lisa, and I really enjoyed her book. Uh, diving into the feminine, also fairy tales, Jungian theory, it's a fantastic presentation. Uh, she's also got a cool um, community she's developed called Spinning Straw. Uh, check it out at spinningstraw.com, and it's a, n- a new online community for women. Uh, that uh, exploring fairy tales, which sounds amazing. So uh, let me read her bio. Lisa Marciano is an award-winning author, podcaster, certified Jungian analyst. Her highly acclaimed books draw upon the healing wisdom of fairy tales to help women collect more deeply with themselves. Lisa is a host of the popular depth psychology podcast, This Jungian Life. Check them out anywhere on any podcast affiliate. Fantastic community. Um... Uh, with over 10 million downloads and a loyal following that includes artists, journalists, and celebrities, This Young in Life is a top podcast in the U.S. in the health and fitness category. Lisa obtained her B.A. from Brown University. She holds a Master's of International Affairs from Columbia and a Master of Social Work from NYU. She trained at the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. In addition to her books, Lisa's writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the Journal of Analytical Psychology. She's sought after speaking workshop facilitator who's lectured widely both in the U.S. and abroad. Lisa, it was great to get to know you, and I really appreciate your time. And uh, your publishing company's fantastic. Uh, are, uh, that, th- th- these are folks that don't get enough attention. Um, so thanks again for arranging this time. Really enjoyed the chat. And for you, the listener, there's more coming up on this subject. I think there are about four or five interviews where we dig into the feminine. Um, a number of, number of them coming up from religious scholars to... Um, my wife, uh, Lila Scott Price, and also um, really just a ton of people who've been digging into these questions about um, certainly gender, sexuality, culture, um, the similarities and differences between the sexes and the various genders. Just such a great exploration. What a great time we're in. Um, Unstable, but great to be exploring and questioning some of these Core, core belief systems. Um, everything's, everything's up for question. So thanks for being here today. Uh, of course, check out The Sacred Speaks. Like, share, send along, comment, do whatever you like. And, uh, and stay tuned, because the winter was kind of a dormant time. I, I rested for the longest night, and we're back in action. And I've got a number of people signed up and lined up for the next few months. So tons of content coming out here for now. Leave it there. Stay tuned. 
Okay. Lisa Marciano, we, we have a, a bit of time to jump in together, and I'm excited that you're here. Thank you. As I was sharing with you, uh, as we were getting acquainted a bit, I've really enjoyed reading your book, and we're going to talk a lot about the structure and what you were getting. But so far, I'm just really glad to meet you, and your name has come up a number of times since we scheduled this in a number of different mm-hmm. contexts. So oh. it's one of those times when all of a sudden... I'm seeing Lisa uh, everywhere. Uh-oh. <laughs> All good things, I promise. Okay. Uh, well, let's let's get started. I want to set the stage a bit. Um, if we can just dive right in. Cool. Um, you know, of course, one of the things that you're writing about is this feminine wisdom, you know, this feminine wisdom truth. Mm-hmm. And, and as I was reading it, I related on so many levels. And so... I, I both saw the sameness and mm-hmm. also the difference. And so I, I want you to talk a little bit about the masculine and the feminine confusing yeah. subjects. Well, I mean, I, I think that this is such a thorny area, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think a lot of us unions kind of have a problem with it too, because we like to throw around these words, the feminine and the masculine, and we kind of know what we mean by them. I mean, when we speak about it like that, especially, you know, the feminine with a capital F, we're talking about a psychological principle. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's one of those bedeviling things because we all kind of know what we mean. Mm-hmm. But when you try to sort of actually nail down what we're actually talking about, you start to get into this territory of like really awful, regressive sexual stereotypes. And you're like, oh, you know, how did I get there? But but just to say for a minute, and, and I want to I always want to try to be like practical because it, it can be very easy in this space for me anyway to kind of get up into the stratosphere with these beautiful um, kind of spiritual ideas. And it's like, no, what are we actually, what are we actually talking about here? So, um, you know, I've, in my practice, in my clinical work, I've, I've worked with um, a lot of women and some men. And the truth is that there is more of the same there than is different in terms of the kinds of psychological things that people struggle with. Um, And, but and uh, I would I would say that in my experience, women maybe struggle with it's like a question of degree. Like m- women maybe struggle more with certain things, or when an issue comes up around this, they struggle with it in a slightly different way, say yeah. than men struggle with it. So there there is something there I think about sort of women's psychology, and in terms of what you reference, the sort of feminine wisdom. I mean, the feminine as a psychological principle is something that we all have access to, yeah. whether or not we're male or female. Um, but it's something like um, being receptive and being nurturing and being connected. That's um, being able to uh, swim with that which is implicit rather than explicit, seeing the whole uh, rather than getting down into the weeds and seeing the parts that these are, these are some of the psychological um, attributes that we associate with the, the feminine principle. Mm -hmm. Can you do the same treatment to the masculine principle? Yeah. I mean, so I I think it, it's sort of ordering or um, kind of, you know, outward focused or focused on, on details and, and focused on the explicit and uh, somewhere I've got this whole list I made. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, um, that, 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 which is more directed and linear rather than kind of circular. There's like, you could go through like probably 30 of these traits. And I think a lot of us would go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's more masculine. Mm-hmm. Okay. That one's more feminine, but it's, that's not saying that, oh, men are like this and women are like this, right? It's just that there are these kinds of maybe these sort of two modes. And as women, I believe that for whatever reason, it is easier to access one than the other and probably the same thing is true for men but i actually believe that our psychological work because we're trying to evolve toward wholeness is to develop that in us which is other yeah go where you don't want to go yeah which is a very Jungian idea it is and we say to people like so what do you not want to talk about today or right yeah. Who's the person you don't want me to see? I love that. I love that. Did that through the book. And so I, I so jumping into some of that, because you hit on a couple of emotional experiences that I think are so complex and difficult for people to understand. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. But you begin right out of the gate with Lilith. Talk about this character, um, un, the unbridled life urge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so um, Lilith in um, medieval um, Jewish mysticism was Adam's first wife, right? She was um, his first partner and he he wanted to, um, she wanted to have sex and, and have her be on top, essentially. And he said, no, 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 you have to be underneath. And she said, well, forget that. I'm going away. I'm out of here. And, you know, God sent these angels to try to coax her back. And she was like, nope. And then she became demonic. And so Lilith was a big, big demon in medieval um, Judaism. And people, um, you know, would sort of uh, had all these rituals to kind of keep her at bay. But it was eventually believed that one of the things that she would do is wait at the, the bedside of the laboring mother and then snatch the baby away. Mm-hmm. And and so you were always trying to propitiate this force. She could also, in one of her guises, she could be, you know, an incredible sexual seductress who could kind of lead men astray. So she was really sort of a, a, a you know, very, very demonic and dark, actually. And, and you're talking about this feminine character as a need to reclaim lost mm-hmm. aspects of self. So right. that that theory of amputation or it, it is really where you set up this uh what you outlaw energies is what you call mm-hmm. them. Yeah. 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 It's good. Yeah. I yeah. love the wildness. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean if you think about it, um women had better be pretty nurturing, warm, attuned, caregiving, right? Because if we weren't we probably wouldn't have survived because mm. there's this very important thing that has to happen for humanity to continue, and that's the children have got to get raised. So when women um, kind of lean into more of their Lilith qualities, that actually is kind of, I mean, I think it's probably perceived as very threatening to the continuation of society, mm-hmm. or certainly it would have been at the time that that myth was alive for people. And so, you know, Lilith has kind of been reclaimed in the 20th and 21st centuries as a kind of feminist icon. Mm. It's like, no, I'm not going to subordinate myself to anyone else's needs or desires. 
which is a, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, I kind of champion her in the setup in the book, mm-hmm. you know, and at the same time, I acknowledge that, 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 that more kind of, I'm going to say kind of maybe typical or even stereotypical way of being nurturing, kind, agreeable, warm, attuned, subordinate, friendly, whatever, that that's really important. Like we need to have that too, and not just for other people, but you know, as I, as I say in the book, and this is just self-evidently true, that, that the caregiving roles that we all play, men and women, you know, at the end of the day, that is often the most important thing to us. You know, it's like you ask anyone, you know, what's the most important thing you did in your life? It's like, well, it's my kids or that my fondest memories are, you know, caring for other people. That's a very inherently meaningful thing. And it, and it is <laughs> yeah. important. And yeah. in order to kind of fully develop ourselves, we need to have access to the kind of what I refer to as kind of Lilith qualities. Mm-hmm. You say that with such experience at heart, you know, <laughs> I hear the, I hear the feeling and yeah, I wonder like your energy to write this book, cause it really does read as a, a process to guide somebody through. I mean, I certainly mm-hmm. went on the ride with you. So would you go into that a bit? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely have had my own experience of having of having to struggle to um, access these qualities. And I, you know, I, I feel like I've sat with women doing it. And I guess part of my question, maybe even when I started writing the book is, is just, is this just the way that I see things because this was my experience, you know, which is always, Mm -hmm. I mean, who who said that every, every theory is actually a confession. Research is me search. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> but but you know, I think I can honestly say that that um this does reflect the experiences of probably just about every woman I've worked with yeah. in one way or another. I mean, you know, some women have no trouble being angry, but they have a lot of trouble maybe with some other quality that I bring up, you know, like finding their desire, believing in their desire, whatever. So I'm not I'm not saying that it's a kind of cookie cutter, but I I do think that there may I may have I may be articulating something that is more or less universal, at least for women today. Um, and and so yes, I, I think that um, it it has been a struggle for me to um, find the room, maybe, to develop these capacities mm. and and develop, claim them, develop them, and feel comfortable utilizing them. So I, I almost think about these things as like tools. For example ruthlessness and it's so funny because i've started giving presentations on the book and both times that i've given presentations i've had someone say okay the first time it was ruthlessness someone said well you know i i like what you're saying but i could never be ruthless i don't think we should be encouraging people to be ruthless and then uh, another time i presented and, and the woman said well i like what you're saying but you know if you, if you tell women that they should be tricksters that's terrible you're teaching them to be manipulative i would never want my daughter mm-hmm. to learn to be a trickster and i said well being able to be a trickster has saved my life. I hope I've taught my daughter to be a trickster at times, right? So it's this differentiation between like, this is who you should be and you should go through the world being ruthless or you should go through the world being tricky. But, But no, it's like a tool in your toolbox. It is an arrow in your quiver. 
that when you need to access that, you can find it. That's really what I'm talking about. And it has been hard for me to learn how to find ruthlessness mm. or um, kind of a justified sense of my own anger or um, a, 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 a real claiming of my desire or, or to really feel like it's okay to not be agreeable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I like what you're saying in that there, there seems to be a cultural norm to these various admissible and not admissible emotional interior experiences that, mm -hmm. that seems to be something that happens in the creation of self on or the individual, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're labeling a couple of, and I, I think just while we're on the subject, I'd like to dive into that because you offer up, yeah, trickster, there was shrewdness, there was the rage there, you know, there was also desire and sexuality and all kinds of other aspects. So can we talk about that as broad individual's life, the woman's life, but the self in all of us. Mm -hmm. Well, well, one of the things that, that I, um, that I say in the introduction that, that feels, uh, I, I will say that I didn't, I wasn't sure what this book was about until like a few weeks before I had the first mm -hmm. manuscript. And that's mm -hmm. when I came up with this sentence and I'm like, yes, that's it. It was really a relief. Um, but you know, qualities like, um, warmth and nurturance and attunement, are, are those that help us get and stay connected with other people. But things like anger, desire, mm. sensuality, ruthlessness, authority, help us get and stay connected to ourselves. Mm. So that's when you know, when you kind of talk about the broadening of the personality, it's like, yes, it's important to be in relationship. It's incredibly important to be in relationship. I mean, we are relational beings. And, and can we, can we also claim that relationship with ourself? And, and to do so, we need certain skills. And when I talk, you asked about ruthlessness, when I talk about that, for example, I'm, I'm not, I'm not actually talking about sort of, you know, developing a, a stomach for administering torture. Mm -hmm. I, I'm talking about, you know, sort of being able to do the, the hard thing that hurts someone else, even when it's the right thing to do. So, um, you know, I, I think I give this example in the book, it's a fairly small example, but when I was in my twenties, I was seeing a, a therapist and it just wasn't working. It wasn't a good, wasn't a good fit. And so I had to tell this person that I didn't want to see them anymore. And I knew it was going to kind of be a blow to their ego. And I knew that they were going to kind of be upset about it. And they were, it's like my perception was accurate, but, <laughs> but I, I was really like, Oh, well, maybe I shouldn't say anything. Because, you know, it's like, no, yeah. you've got to just do it, you know, because who is it serving not to do that? It's serving them, but not really. So that's that's what I mean by ruthless, a capacity for ruthlessness. Yeah, ruthless against the part of yourself that's telling you to be nice and kind, you know, all that stuff, and and don't ruffle feathers. Right. And that I guess the outlaw energy really does. I'm so attracted to that. I think that we need to be wilder and we yeah. need to leave room for wild space. Yes. Uh, and so, Jung talks about that all the time. He talks about the importance of being connected to the instincts. Yeah. What'd you Sorry. learn? I mean, no, no, go there. Cause I, I'm, I'm curious. And every time I get to talk to an author, 
my, my colleague and d dear friend Jeff Kripal says that writing is really coming to understand what mm -hmm. it, it, it's not so much communicating information in its best of times. So I'm wondering how the book influenced your own process and what it stirred up for you, not necessarily mm -hmm. personal content, but just, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that feels really right to me that it's, it's always kind of a process of discovery. And um, I, in some ways, I think I had been working on these ideas for a long time at an unconscious level. Mm. Like, again, within my own life, I would say that um, it's been a major life theme for me, this issue of kind of claiming authority. Yeah, that's been a major, major life theme. And, uh, you know, one that I'm glad to say I've made some headway with. <laughs> mm. I'm sure I've got a ways to go. But, oh, I know I have a ways to go. But, um, so, so, you know, it's sort of like these ideas were alive, but they weren't formulated. And that's what writing forces you to do, right, is mm. to formulate it, to be able to make it explicit. And there's that, you know, in some ways, this knowledge was implicit. But then uh, I had to make it explicit. And that is always an unbelievably kind of satisfying thing to do. And it's this actually, um, I think in a way, it's a kind of merger of the feminine and the masculine mm -hmm. to take like intuitive knowledge and put it into language. Theorem and that, proof. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So it's so it's so syn synthesizing, mm -hmm. you know, in, in that way. And in some sense, that is what we're supposed to be doing in psychological work. It is. And even these, we would, you know, undesirable, the, the undesirable emotions like jealousy and envy and greed and mm -hmm. rage, you know, all the stuff you write about. What do you feel called to do? I mean, I feel that I'm, I love the treatment that you did on all these emotions, but I'm gathering that what's happened is you've seen these struggles in people's lives through your clinical practice, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, let me just jump back in here because I want to mm -hmm. get into. You taught at the very beginning. You talk a little bit. I'm going to go traditional Jungian for a little bit. You know, because early on you talk about mother and father archetypes, and how they come up in the context, intermasculine dynamics. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about archetypes, how you understand them, and how we can kind of use that knowledge to apply it to our lived experience? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess kind of like what's important to know about archetypes is. Um, that they're psychic universals. So mm -hmm. Jung says that they're 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 they they are their a priori. So we are born uh, with them in our psyche in some sense. And if you want to think about it a little bit more metaphysically, they just exist sort of outside of um, I don't know any individual psyche. Um, so uh, that that's that's a pretty cool thought. And then. The other thing that's important about them, I think, in the, in the life of an individual is that they have a they have a tremendous amount of power. There's something about the archetype that is numinous, that feels awe-inspiring, that kind of connect us with a certain kind of psycho-spiritual energy that um, infuses life with mystery, symbol, and meaning. And so when the archetypes show up, now they're not, it's not all sunshine and roses, right? Because the archetypes always have a positive pole and a negative pole and an archetype can show up when an archetype constellates, Jung would say, mm -hmm. um, you know, they can move events, people, individuals, nations really powerfully. So one of his 
famous essays is is called Wotan. Mm-hmm. And it's about what happened to Germany in the 30s. And he links it with Wotan, the Norse god. So he says, you know, this this archetype kind of got loose and went rampaging through Germany, you know, and and uh, it was incredibly, incredibly destructive. Mm-hmm. But but, you know, in, in a similar way, too, we can feel deeply, deeply moved um, by by the constellation of of a, a the positive pull of an archetype and, and that can bring healing and redemption and um, move, you know, societies and individuals in really positive directions as well. So it, it can happen in the life of the collective and it can also happen in our individual lives. Yeah. How do you see this influencing? I'm just wondering about your kind of conceptualization of this, Freudian Jungian collision between early life experience and what we traditionally consider Jungian theory. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you talk a little bit about that. As you, I'm interested, how you use that clinically, and then how you brought your clinical awareness into this book that mm-hmm. to a large swath of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you're you're interested in in this idea about kind of early life development and how yeah. that, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, what what. You know, Freud, of course, kind of said that we're totally cooked by the time we're five, mm-hmm. I think, is what he says. And um, and Jung was one of these theorists who really believed that we continue to grow and change throughout the, the lifespan. And I think they're both right, in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do, we do, you know, there are insights from, say, neuro neurobiology that um, really support some of what, what Freud says about the importance of the early years, for example, in laying down... Um, patterns of object relations and uh, attachment styles and that sort of thing, but but Jung was also right that we we do continue to grow and change. And uh, you know um, his conception of psychological growth, I think, was much broader than Freud's. And what 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 Jung would say about early life development is that we come into the world with an a priori experience, say, of mother. So we have installed within us a kind of expected pattern of mother that is the experience of the archetype so we're kind of wired to receive that pattern called mother and then our individual experience of that archetype is mediated by personal interactions with our mother or mothering institutions like a school or you know allo parents that might play a mothering role so that one might have, for example, a positive mother complex that has the archetypal mother at its core, but is based on, you know, largely positive experiences with the personal mother in childhood. So your mother basically met your needs and uh, was basically reliable and that sort of thing. Then you, you kind of get this programming installed that Jungians call a positive mother complex. So then you you feel like the world is more or less a friendly place. You expect people to like you. You kind of expect your needs to get met. And that generally tracks pretty positive for you in the world. You know, that's a, that's not a bad place to start off from, although there are downsides to a positive mother complex too. There sure are. <clears throat> are you still, do you still have a private practice? Do you still work oh, yes. clinically? Oh, you yes. Do? Mm-hmm. How long have you done that? Um, I have been, um, I've had a private practice since 2000. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. It's a radical experience, isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, shows some of the Jungian piece. I mean, so also we need to talk about um, your podcast also a bit. And one of the things I love about what you do, certainly in the podcast, but also in the book, is talk a lot about fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And you obviously it's very central to just a ton of fairy tales. Would you talk about why that is and what the role of the fairy tale is and what that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why it deserves such a central mm-hmm. role in your book? Oh, well, they're just so great. <laughs> they're just so great. I, I can tell. Yeah. God, yeah. They're just so great. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Jungians like archetypal material, these um, expressions of universal images that occur in myths, fairy tales, religious symbols. So fairy tales are, you know, one aspect of, of these kind of universal images. They're a storehouse of psychological patterns. I mean, you know, uh, for example, Cinderella, you know, that's a Mm. famous one that we all know. There's a way that that story describes a particular psychological experience that many of us have had a version of. And it's not even just necessarily um, uh, having a terrible mother or a stepmother or something. It's more like um, an experience of inner disenfranchisement. Mm Mm-hmm. Oof. And right. and then and then how how we overcome that. I'll bite. That's good. Tell me more about inner disenfranchisement. Yeah, well if you if you think about Cinderella from a, a purely symbolic standpoint, and what I mean by that is we assume that every character in the tale is an aspect of a single psyche. So it's kind of similar to how we work with dreams. It's not so much that Cinderella has to meet the prince to be rescued from her terrible stepsisters. It's how, if it's, if it's a symbolic language for, how, for someone's life, it would be like, how is that person um, disregarding their own needs so that they're essentially treating themselves like a scullery maid? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so a lot of us do something like that. And, 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 and I've seen men do that, but I, I think it's probably more common and more marked in the life of a woman. So for example, if you have someone who maybe feels very, um, uh, you know, maybe let's, let's, I'm going to make up a little uh, hypothetical case. Let's Mm -hmm. say that you've got a woman who is very talented and very intelligent and uh, very ambitious, because a lot of times if we're talented and intelligent, we also have a kind of inborn need to express some of that. But she believes for one reason or another, perhaps because she's been told by the culture, perhaps this was in her family, but also this may be just something that's in her psyche that she needs to subordinate her needs and mostly make herself available to other people. So instead of maybe pursuing a career as a writer, she becomes a kindergarten teacher and she has to go in she doesn't particularly like kids but she's got to go in day out day in day out and and kind of herd these little kids and you know supposedly this is virtuous but what she's doing actually is taking her her own sort of inner you know she's kind of she's kind of behaving a little bit like the the terrible stepsisters in the story that she's taking this incredible potential and talent that she has 
and and making herself you know swab the floors with it by the way i'm not there this is no dig against any kindergarten teacher um you know it's just that we're all called to different things yes and and if you're called to be a kindergarten teacher then that's a beautiful thing if you're if you're called to be something else then and and you're you're kindergarten and you're a kindergarten teacher because you think you should be yeah then you're treating yourself like a scullery maid and you've got to figure figure out how to meet your own inner prince. Yeah, I, uh, it's so t- the gender conversation is so tense. Like so we just hard. and we can't have it. Um, oh, go! I'm. I'll go there. Go, you know. It's, throw, it's throw so it at me. yeah. So I just immediately think about the same kind of dynamic that shows up in our culture that says that our value is attached to the amount of money mm-hmm. and that we are all living as an indentured servant to this idea or ideal that anybody who's worked with anybody who has money knows very quickly that money does not eradicate suffering. And so there's there's a kind of allegiance to that culturally identified roadmap, you know, like destination. And so I, what I think in so much of what I heard in your book is that you're, you're talking about disrupting all of those inevitabilities. So I I do want to know fundamentally, like two things, I mean, with gender in mind and with this masculine feminine dynamic in mind, where does our culture go wrong? Can we, can we critique? Is I, yeah. Well, um, so I'm, I'm, (laughs) I think for sure, a lot of this is cultural. Yeah. But I don't think all of it is cultural. And there is a way that one of the things that I want to do in my book is say, yeah, a lot of it's cultural. And that is, that just sucks. Mm. Let's get on with it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Say more. Well, the thing is, if you just say, look, it, it, it sucks being a woman and it surely does, you know, I was, you know, I have, I have some young women in my practice who work in corporate environments and it's like, oh boy, it sounds like it hasn't really changed. You're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, if you speak up, you're a bitch. If you don't speak up, you wind up just making the coffee, you know, this, this, these kinds of things. I mean, you know, these, these are real things. And, yes. and if we just say, oh God, it's the patriarchy, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's the culture in, I, I mean, yes, but then you've also disenfranchised yourself by when you, as soon as you say that, as soon as you say it's all the culture you have, um, you have put yourself in the role of a victim and you have left yourself with no little to no agency because the only way to fix the culture, I don't even, how would we do that? How would we fix the whole culture? Are we going to do that tomorrow? No, <laughs> we're not going to, we're probably not going to do it in the next 20 years. Yeah. So if you're a young woman and you're in this, you know, office environment where you, if you speak up, you're a bitch. And if you don't speak up, you make the coffee, then you can rail against the patriarchy all you want. And surely some, a lot of it is justified, but how does that help you other than make you may, maybe make you feel angry and spent. Right. And what I'm interested in is, um, okay, but where are you? in that in 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 this situation in some sense the situation's a bit of a given what what are you going to do about it and that's why in the first chapter i mean one of the central ideas in the book 
which was not my idea, but I loved it when I came upon it and grad gratefully borrowed it, um, is this idea of a worthy opponent. Mm -hmm. I right, love that, by the way. Yeah. And yep. where I really felt um, energetically aligned. I want that. Yeah. Yes. It's true. I want that. Like, I it's all the ways that we dodge each other that, that become problematic. We meet somebody who's just like working to be authentic and genuine. It, it it's, it's a beautiful thing. I'll, I'll give you a, a worthy opponent story from my own life that I, awesome. I wish I had put in the book and I didn't, but if I ever get to revise it, I'll put it in the book. Um, so, uh, um, my husband has always been very like concerned about money. Okay. He's a mm. very kind of frugal guy. And at one point I was in analytic training, which, which isn't itself expensive, but I was able to kind of cover the cost of it through my private practice. But when it came time to take the big exams or these big exams that you take about, you know, two thirds of the way through the process called the probadoidigum. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of studying and you've got to do a lot of consultation and you've got to, um, order a lot of, you know, extra reading materials. So between like, you know, extra time for the babysitter and, and, you know, um, traveling to have special consultations with different analysts about, you know, learning dream interpretation or whatever it is, I needed some money. I didn't have any money in my account. And I, I needed like, you know, like $10,000 to do this. <laughs> and, um, so I, you know, I, I was like, I don't want to ask my husband cause he's going to give me a really hard time. Uh -huh. So I, I, I was a trickster. And I asked my dad mm -hmm. and my dad said, sure, I'll lend you the money. So I took $10,000 from my dad to pay for this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as one would expect, and as I think I knew what happened, my husband, I mean, like, you don't, you don't hide $10,000, you know, he's like, where's this $10,000 coming from? So we found out about it and he was understandably very upset, which is completely correct, right? Like taking like doing something like that as a spouse is not, it's not cool, right? What right. I did was not cool. Um, and he got understandably upset. And I just said to him, I needed the money and I didn't want to deal with your pushback because he would have said, he would have questioned me, like, is this worth it? And I felt like I couldn't tolerate that kind of questioning because mm. I, I needed, I, I was having a hard time believing in myself as it was. It was hard for me to think about saying, no, you've got to trust me. I'm, you know, this is money well spent. I wasn't, you know, I was kind of terrified and I wasn't in a good space for that. So I said, I didn't want to deal with your pushback. And he said, then you should just push harder. Wow. Yes. Which was a great thing to say. Yeah. Right. He was saying, all right, you're, he didn't, he didn't disagree with me. He didn't, you know, he didn't say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, he was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I would have pushed back. I would have screamed, you know, my husband's Sicilian. He would have like waved his arms and gotten loud and said, well, what are we doing? You know, this isn't a good idea. He would have done that. But what he was inviting me to do is stand my ground and come back at him and say, mm -hmm. no, you're wrong, buddy. This is a good way to spend $10,000. And it was, by the way, I passed all my exams. But um... oh, yeah, totally. Yes. There's a real <laughs> distinction here that's important about because because we, we do, we run the risk of like, is it manipulation or is it this? And when does it harm to self and when is it other? And the framework that you're using really is in taking risk and service to some 
yes goal but also yes. keeps you in relationship to people that are it's not it's not sociopathic you know right as you right. said earlier right well there's Which, yeah i mean there's a couple things in there i mean i think you know my husband was encouraging me to be a worthy opponent yeah right i didn't really have access to that in a way well could i have pushed myself and done it you know like had that conversation, you know, maybe I could have and I should have. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel capable, so I, I played the trickster. But, and and this is where people say, oh, you know, the trickster, oh, you're being manipulative. It's like, well, yes, you know, mm -hmm. and like you're saying, you know, it's, it's not about, hey, go out there and just be manipulative for its own sake or for selfish ends, but in service to something larger. Yeah, like when is lying okay? Yeah. All that these great moral right. conversations, you know, right. like this is uh Kohlberg was looking at that, you know, the the moral development and what state. Yes, uh, that stuff is fascinating, and mm -hmm. we get stuck in little moral moralisms, mm -hmm. you know, where nuance goes away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes you need to lie. Sometimes you do. Yeah, sometimes you do. I tell parents a lot, you know that somebody will say they're manipulating me and it's like yeah it's okay yeah you know manipulation you manipulate them all the time mm -hmm. we call it healthy manipulation yeah yeah yes <laughs> earlier you took this on and I, I wanted to get a little deeper about this this idea of the cultural blame and the the patriarchy you know mm -hmm. that i love what you're saying it's kind of like a yes and given drama where is your personal responsibility and your agency because that's i mean maybe and maybe they're the same thing you know where mm -hmm. where you have responsibility is also where you can be agentic where you can change the outcome and you you won't you may not be able to change the outcome um in lots of ways but um but maybe there's a place where you can you know for example um you know, uh, I don't know if I had just folded and said, well, I can't, you know, I can't really afford to that $10,000. So I guess, oh, well, you know, maybe I won't, maybe I won't <laughs> study for the exams, you know, then I, and maybe, you know, but, but, but sort of by hook or by cook, I was going to figure out how to pass those exams. Right. Yes. And that's, that's that agency. And I kind of did it in whatever way I could at the time. And it would have been better if I could have done it in a conscious way. Or, or more a more forthright way, but I, I did what I needed to do. Um, so so it, it is about um, be, because I am I am interested in, as an individual therapist, right? I, I am interested in the outcomes for individuals. And mm -hmm. yes, it would be good to reform culture. But I'm interested in the people that are in my office and what's going to happen to them next week and next month and next year. Yeah. And and I'm I am interested in people self actualizing. I am interested in seeing people reach their potential and, and what do you have to do to do that? You know, sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to be, um, furious. Sometimes you have to be ruthless. Sometimes you have to be tricky and manipulative. And, and again, I think the ethic, the ethical stance is what is this in service to? Great question. And if it's in service to your own unfolding, you know, really and truly, then uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't let you know. Sometimes a, an overly rigid adherence to mores can be a kind of defense against the risk that it takes 
to fully be oneself. And in steps sexuality. Mm -hmm. I, I have to say that your treatment of sexuality was extremely refreshing. And I immediately was excited for having this conversation. Mm so important like my wife and i work in this space of healing and we we do a lot have recently done a bit of gender work in reconciliation and um this 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 crew called jerry and it's it so totally obvious is that models for mm -hmm. embodiment for sensuality for sexuality and that there's something you said that's very important about the way men tend to approach the female or feminine sexuality. Mm -hmm. I thought that's a public service announcement if I've ever heard one. So I wonder <laughs> if you just explore that a bit and talk about this kind of issue with our sexuality that gets pushed down into a, uh, the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved that chapter, actually. I love that the story I felt that, that I use for, yeah. for that, that it, you know, it's, but I, I do, th I do think that, you know, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, if part of my thesis in the book is that men and women are different, like perhaps inherently so, and perhaps not just due to culture, at least some of it, mm -hmm. boy, is that ever true in sex? Because I, you know, we're just, hey, I, we're different. Men and women are just really different sexually. Um, and not just because we have different parts, but because, right. um, boy, they just, they operate really differently. And I think that, you know, um, you know, men, as I said, I don't know if you will find this, um, you know, insulting, but men are kind of simple, you know, it's like, it's pretty easy to figure out what makes, what, <laughs> I what think works for a guy. I, and... I, who is, um, honest says, yeah, yeah, no, no offense. I promise that's right. totally true. Yes. But for, for women, our sexual response is much more varied. It varies a lot from individual to individual. I think it probably varies a lot over the lifetime. It can vary from week to week. And uh, yes, it's a little mysterious. And it's, yes, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and I and I really find that a lot of men, I think, don't understand how different we are, mm -hmm. you know, and, and don't understand that the things that, you know, first and from woman to woman, I mean, so different. We're, I, mm -hmm. Whereas men are probably kind of in a narrower band in terms of kind of what what works for women it's just you know i think it's really really broad and um so you know if a woman is not really prepared to work with a man to help him understand her and if the man is not kind of mm. open to understanding that then you know i mean we're sort of set up for frustration and disappointment a lot of times mm -hmm. and it, it's really it, it's a very tender thing for for men and women because Oh, all of us, we want to feel, we want to feel desired and appreciated and loved. And, and we, we may have very different expectations from each other. If we're talking about heterosexual relationships about, you know, how, how that's supposed to happen or how we're supposed to make that happen. And, and I do think that for women, because of this kind of, I'm going to, I want to say like inherent, innate, biological difference between men and women, it's pretty easy for us to like, oh, I, you know, again, if we're talking heterosexual relationships, I know it works. Let me just do that. I'm tired. Let's just get it over with. And then it's like, do we ever really think, well, what would feel good to me? What would I like? You know, could I, could I, first of all, take the time to figure that out? And then could I, ask for that in a way that's not like in passing, but, but really sort of demand from my partner that he meet me there. I think that's hard for a lot of women.
Yeah, and, and to this point, I think it's because, and I'll just project here, mm -hmm. men have a tendency to project their process and desires onto women, and so therein lies. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. You 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 sum sum that up much more succinctly than I did. But yes, men men assume that we work like they do, and yeah. we don't, or at least most of us don't. Maybe some of us do, but most of us don't. Yeah, and 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 so herein lies which is when men's, women start behaving in ways that they think the man wants to receive them. And that mm -hmm. creates this, speak to that, because that was the second point that I thought stood out in that chapter that I love so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that um, if, if we're just simply trying to uh, meet his desires or kind of um, fall into some sort of fantasy that we assume he has, um, then, you know, then, then, then our, our, we just get lost as individuals. And, and it's not a true, it's not a true meeting either because, um, he maybe has a fantasy about us and we're not being honest about mm -hmm. what we're, where, where we are and what we want. And likewise, we might have a fantasy about what he wants or what he wants us to be. And and if there's not room to say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, you know, where where are we in this? So, um, you know, one one of the things that I talk about in that chapter is is this desire for mutuality. You know, not not mm -hmm. just um, well, let me meet, let me just let me be here to meet your needs and kind of service you, or um, you know, whatever that might mean. But let's let's have a truly mutual experience. A difficult thing, a difficult thing, especially I think in heterosexual relationships. Well, you said that. Could you broaden this out, like for those who are listening and saying, "Yeah, what about all these different kinds of sexualities and different of gender and sex?" Mm -hmm. How do you map that on here? Well, you know, one of one of the things that comes up in that chapter is a, a story of a, a woman that I worked with who who had a um, sort of an emotional affair um, with a with a woman. She'd always been married to a man, but she had this very intense attraction to a young woman, and it just really changed the way she understood herself sexually. She didn't she didn't leave her husband. She never even acted on it. And it's not like she sort of decided, oh gosh, I'm a lesbian. Um, but it it the 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 relationship, the 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 crush, the attraction, kind of opened into this fantasy realm that was very very different for her, and allowed her to experience herself and her desire in a really new way. And if you look at the research, for mm -hmm. example, I mean, I think this is pretty widely known, but I did check it, and it's there. You know, lesbians report having more orgasms, and it's probably mm -hmm. because, um, you know, women partners are, are more willing to kind of do the work uh, to pleasure each other. And also, as you were saying before about kind of people projecting their preferences onto their partner, I mean, it's a lot easier to understand what a woman wants if you're a woman. If you have a mm -hmm. woman's body, you may be able to read a woman's body better, and perhaps that same thing is true for um male same-sex couples so you know there there is something very hard about trying to manage uh heterosexual sex i think well there but you're you said it there i think really well is that if you're if you're participating in the sexual experience by trying to fulfill 
your definition of pleasure is and you're not involved in the mutual exploration of mm -hmm. what that is, there is a very general statement that doesn't need any gender or sex yes. attached to it. You know, like, so right. there- That's great, yeah. Really well, you know, you're, you're talking about meeting in a kind of mutual tension in general. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe what we're getting to, and I, I appreciate the way you phrase that, is um, real attention um, requires a kind of, um, well, I'm going to say radical curiosity about yeah. the other person, regardless of sex, right? Regardless of gender or sex. It's like... Yeah, not just getting pleasure, but mm -hmm. playing. And you, you put that at the beginning of the chapter, I think, in your introduction, you were talking about play and sensuality and sexuality in the same kind of mm -hmm. structure. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, before, before we jump off that topic, because I, I know we've got to finish in a little bit, just as a, again, I, I think these are valuable because I, I, I talk with a lot of women about needing to find their sacred community. And, mm -hmm. and so, of course, one of the narratives around that is the red tent. And you said it earlier about kind of being oriented to mothering. Talk about need or maybe even the shadow or the struggle for women congregating, the feminine congregating, what, the, what shadows tend to emerge and how might people go about engaging in those communal experiences with mm -hmm. awareness so the mm -hmm. inevitable doesn't play out? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think it. I think shadow is inevitable. You know, I mean, I, I, um, <laughs> I love women's communities. I actually run women's retreats, and I have an online women's fairy tale space too, where yeah. we talk about a different fairy tale every month. And I, and, I, and I love that. And, and those women's retreats are just so really magical. So, so uh, there, there's something about being with women that is really um, profound and necessary, I think. And I think it always has been. Like women have always kind of needed their own spaces. I think men really need their own spaces too. Um, and those mm -hmm. have been, you know, time-honored so you know we, we we need this and um yeah i think there can be problems with both all male spaces and all female spaces um you know i think that the some of the shadow of of women's spaces is um you know uh you know the, the kind of relational aggression that women are known for that is a real thing um you know women are not saints and we can be pretty ruthless with each other in these kind of underhand, really kind of cruel, let's say cruel mm -hmm. to each other in, these, um, in this sense of kind of relational aggression. I think that sometimes the problem with spaces that are overly, well, so another, another shadow of, of sort of the feminine is um, there's such a thing as too much good mother. Mm -hmm. which I mean goes right to my book right because in, in some sense if if the good mother stuff is the nurturing and the warm and the agreeable and the friendly and the, then then you could say you could say that the good, good the good father is some of the other things like you know being shrewd and being mm -hmm. um, you know uh, you know following your desires and being authoritative and that sort of thing 
So, I mean, I, I, you may know this as a, as a psychologist. I mean, psychology is generally a profession of the good mother, but a lot of times therapists, you know, fall into being too much of the good mother where you you're the therapist who's just always, you know, you're just always validate and you never challenge and you just, Oh, you know, you empathize so easy to do that as a therapist. And most of us who go into this profession go into it because we like to be the good mother and we want to be comforting and nurturing and validating, but you don't help someone grow if you never confront them. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, I'm maybe wandering a little bit far from your question, but I, I think it is relevant. I think in, in certain organizations, for example, that are too heavily female, I think, I think good organizations are probably balanced, you know, um, that's, I, I have no data on that. I'm just making that up, but I'd be curious to know if there, there was data, but I suspect that, um, it, they'd be balanced because, because if you, if you, if you have too much positive mother in an organization, then, um, I don't know, you know, then, then, uh, you know, it might look like, um, people can just not show up at work and, and say, oh, you know, I I wasn't feeling well. And it's like, well, no, we have a, we have a contractual arrangement here where you have to come to work. And, you know, if you're sick, you call out. Um, I mean, maybe that's a little bit of a a pat, um, example, but I, I, I think that that Mm -hmm. attitude can sometimes occur in organizations that are heavily female and that it it can get in the way of achieving the organizational goals. I I think I've seen that. So it's, it, 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 you know, and, and listen, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I, you know, I'm definitely in the sort of nurturing, empathizing, all that, all the rest of that camp. But I, I, the older I get, the more I see, oh yeah, it's a good thing that there's someone you know, kind of lowering the boom, saying, no, we got to do this. It's like, yeah, that's necessary too. So it's the both and. Oh, amen to that. Well, we've got just a few minutes and I want you to be able to give a bit of a, you know, let folks know what you're up to and what's going on and, you know, and what you hope the book will accomplish for folks that find it. Mm -hmm. Well, so the book is called The Vital Spark. Reclaim your outlaw energies and find your feminine fire. And it will be on sale on February 6th. And it's available for pre-order now. And I guess my hope for it is that um, it will resonate with people. You know, my first Mm -hmm. book, Motherhood, I heard so many great stories of like this really brought me out of a dark place when I was reading it. You know, that's, I think, listen, books have saved my life more than once. And I, um, that's probably why I write. And so when I, when I hear from someone you know, that my book sort of metaphorically saved their life. Nothing makes me happier. So I hope it, you know, metaphorically saved lots of people's lives. And awesome. um, I also have a podcast called This Union Life. It's a weekly podcast uh, that I do with two fellow union analysts. Uh, my website is lisamarchietto.com. And if you're interested in my women's um, fairy tale group, that's called spinningstraw.com. Well, thank you. We've got two youngians in this practice and we... Oh, great your crew and the podcast it's very well received and i'll certainly point everybody in that direction but for now uh lisa thank you for your time this is uh thanks for the opportunity i've i've learned i've learned so much from reading your books i'm feeling grateful oh thank you so much i really enjoyed our conversation control
this way